0: Hey, listener. Thank you for joining us for this installment of the Restoration Project's weekly podcast. We are currently studying the Book of Ruth. Many people approach this well known story as a romance between Ruth and Boaz, but it's a bit more than that. A lot more, actually. It's a story of grief and loss, bitterness and resentment. It's a story of including the stranger. It's a story of the radical and costly commitment modeled by some of the book's main characters and God's unending faithfulness even in the midst of tragedy. Ultimately, it's a story of redemption and restoration and hope. There is a lot to consider in this beautiful and ancient work of art, and as we hope to make clear, it points us ahead to the death and resurrection of Jesus. Enjoy the episode. So over the past couple weeks, we have been looking at the book of Ruth. And once again, I've said it once, I'll say it 50 times. I'll say it every week that we talk about this book. I'm excited. This is um, another time through this book for me, but I'm seeing so many things I haven't seen in the past. And I hope that you guys are as well. The way that we're describing the story is it's a story of grief, it's a story of commitment, and it's a story of unending faithfulness. And last week, we really looked at the grief in the first few verses of this book, the author kind of advances us to uh, the place where, we'll, where we will be spending most of our time tonight. But he, he glances over some very significant moments in the life of Naomi. In particular, Naomi and her husband, Elimelech, and their two kids, Malon and Kilion, they, they travel from Bethlehem to Moab to the east. They're going to foreign territory in search of food. The author doesn't say if this is a good move or not a good move, but it seems that people are wondering about the faith commitments of this family. They find themselves in foreign territory, and while they are there, Naomi watches her husband pass away. Her two sons marry foreign women, which we'll talk about later on this evening. It's not necessarily something that's looked highly upon throughout the Old Testament. They marry a woman named Ruth and a woman named Orpah. And over the course of 10 years or so, while they are still in foreign territory, Malon and Kilion, both of Naomi's sons, die. And the author kind of brings us to this point, and it's almost like it's cold and it's terse in in the lack of detail that's afforded in this passage. But he says, only the woman was left. The phrasing that he uses and the the verb choice that he uses here are, are strange. Only the woman was left without her two children and without her husband. Now, I keep referring to the author as he, and I'm probably just slipping back into some Old Testament scholarly stuff, but there are discussions as to whether or not a woman was the author of Ruth, nobody knows. Uh, But I don't wanna keep saying he and not throw that out there to you for your consideration because this is a strange book in the Old Testament. It is so focused on female characters that some people have wondered whether or not a female was writing this story we don't know, but what we have here is, oddly enough, a female-driven story set right in the midst of ancient Near Eastern patriarchy. It's beautiful, but we have this woman who is in the midst of grief. One uh, scholar, Phyllis Tribble, says, from wife to widow, from mother to no mother, Naomi is stripped of all identity. The security of husband and children, which a male-dominated culture affords its women, is hers no longer. The definition of worth by which it values the female applies to her no more. The blessings of old age, which it gives through progeny, are there no longer. Stranger in a foreign land, this woman is a victim of death and life. And last week, we kind of talked about this idea that there's a as Walter Brueggemann would say, a costly loss of lament within the American church where we do not provide space for people to grieve. We do not provide space for people to kind of shake their fists and grit their teeth and say, what are you doing? We've lost over a third of the biblical Psalms where people are crying out in protest and petition because in America, you gotta smile. And when people say, how are you? You say, fine. Because if you were to stop someone on the road and they say, how are you? and say, well, I'm really struggling with X, Y, and Z. That conversation would get awkward very quickly. I am the master of awkward conversations, I'll have you know, so I can spot them out. I appreciate the candor of people when they do engage in those conversations. And perhaps people might know that I'm a pastor, so they can unleash some of that. But for the most part, we don't go there with people, even though... Over the last week even, within our community and our extended community, we have experienced the loss, the significant loss of people that are special to us. Whether it's kids who are passing away because of cancer, whether it's 30-year-old women who are passing away because of cancer. We are experiencing significant loss and pain and within the church, we haven't particularly allowed space for people to grieve. We try to hurry the process so that people can be okay because Jesus fixes everything. But in this story, rather than glancing over Naomi and her loss, we kind of wanted to spotlight it last week and say, it's okay to be angry. It's okay to protest. It's okay to be in grief. It's okay to feel Loss. I believe that Jesus walks with us in those moments. And it might not be just we experience death here because for some of us, that's not our story, but perhaps we've experienced the loss of the image of someone that we know where the things that they have chosen to do shift how we begin to think of them. Perhaps it's the loss of a financial situation or a relationship that was dear to us. Perhaps it's the loss of a dream or a hope or something that we have deeply rooted in our very being. We experience loss in so many ways. It could be loss in the sense of you're sending a kid to college come September. Who knows, but we have these moments. And through Naomi, we see at least one example of how she begins to process through this. My argument last week was we see in Naomi kind of a, an edge, if you will. And we're going to shine some more light on that uh, as we continue. But Naomi has experienced the loss of her husband and her two kids. And this is where the story picks up in Ruth chapter 1 in verse 6. It says, then she, this is Naomi, then she arose along with her daughters-in-law to return from the field of Moab because while in the territory of Moab, she had heard that the Lord had paid attention to his people by providing food for them. She left the place where she had been and her two daughters-in-law went with her, they went along the road to return to the land of Judah. Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, go, turn back each of you to the household of your mother. May the Lord deal faithfully with you just as you have done with the dead and with me. May the Lord provide for you so that you may find security, each woman in the household of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept but they replied to her, no, instead, we will return with you to your people. Naomi replied, turn back my daughters. Why would you go with me? Will there again be sons in my womb that they would be husbands for you? Turn back my daughters, go. I am too old for a husband. If I were to say that I have hope, even if I had a husband tonight and even more, if I were to bear sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you refrain from having a husband? No, my daughters. This is more bitter for me than for you, since the Lord's will has come out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth stayed with her. Naomi said, look, your sister-in-law is returning to her people and to her gods. Turn back after your sister-in-law. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to abandon you, to turn back from following after you. Wherever you go, I will go, and wherever you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do this to me, and more so if even death separates me from you. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her about it. So both of them went along until they arrived at Bethlehem. When they arrived at Bethlehem, the whole town was excited on account of them. And the women of the town asked, can this be Naomi? She replied to them, don't call me Naomi, but call me Mara for the almighty has made me very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has returned me empty. Why would you call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has deemed me guilty? Thus, Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, returned with her from the territory of Moab. They arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. The word of God for the people of God. My Old Testament uh, professor, one of my Old Testament professors in seminary used to say, when you're reading the Bible, there are no free motifs, meaning there's no just subsidiary um, pieces of information. So that last little bit about the barley harvest beginning when they return, tuck that one away. It seems very strange and out of place, but the author knows what he or she is doing in this particular story by foreshadowing food yet again as these people come back to it. But we're gonna focus tonight. Last week, we looked at Naomi and her grief and her loss. We even looked at um, how her her frame of reference or her viewpoint might have been in light of these events. And hopefully you kind of, if you were here last week, you heard some of this in the reading of the story. So like Ruth lays out this big, long uh, spiel about your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And then Naomi, when she saw that she couldn't convince her otherwise, she just stopped talking about it. And I kind of think a good reading of this story is, she just says, whatever, Ruth, let's just go back home. They don't speak to each other for the rest of the chapter. And remember when she gets back there, she says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara because I am bitter. And the Hebrew Mara means bitter. Whereas Naomi means something like pleasant or beautiful. She says, call me Mara because I'm bitter. I went away full, but now God has made me empty. And Ruth is standing right next to her. You know, there's this little bit of of, of an edge here, but I wanna focus on Ruth and her story this evening. Uh, One scholar says the first words that we hear from Ruth's lips alone, they do, her and Orpah, they both raise their voices loud, which we have no idea what they're saying. It might've just been they're crying, but they're making a lot of noise and they're crying and they're hugging. But the first time we hear Ruth say something on her own, this is important, especially when you're looking at narrative, the first words that someone utters uh, is, is important. So here, Ruth, uh, the first words that we hear from her are among the most memorable in all of scripture, Daniel Bloch says. Few utterances in the Bible match her speech for sheer poetic beauty and the extraordinary courage and spirituality that it expresses. Another commentator, Robert Hubbard says, with the ring of poetry, the now familiar words, her very first in the story, they soar on the wings of rhythm they still tower as a majestic monument of faithfulness above the biblical landscape. People really freak out about this passage where Ruth has this confession, this faithful um, discourse that she launches into her bitter and angry mother-in-law. It's all set up, and I've got a couple of things that I wanted to throw in here for you. It's all set up by Naomi saying for the fourth time to her daughter-in-law, In the text, there's this word called. um, It's pronounced "hine." You guys say "hine," "hine," "hine." It's it's behold. My Old Testament professor used to say it's like, um, "What do you know?" And "What do you know?" But there was an article a couple days ago in the Toast where it replaced every "behold" word in the Bible with "look, buddy," or "listen, pal." So if we're just here, like, just humor me for a moment. We've got Naomi who says, look, buddy, your sister-in-law is returning to her people and to her gods. Get out of my face. It's good comedy, okay? You'll, you'll catch up with me later. But she says, like, behold, or look, buddy, listen, pal, listen, lady, this is what's happening. Get out of my face, which encourages Ruth into this uh, speech. Now, I don't know if you guys watch New Girl, but I do, and when I was looking at this um. Passage. The thing that I kept thinking of with Ruth for the fourth time saying, Ruth, get out of my face. Or excuse me, Naomi saying, Ruth, get out of my face. I don't want you here. Go on, get out of here. I was thinking about Schmidt at the end of one season where he's going out with Cece. Okay, for the people that don't know what I'm talking about, uh, Schmidt is the guy, the second one in on the right, and Cece is the one on the far left. They, sh- they shouldn't be dating, but they are. And I forget for whatever reason, Schmidt wants to get rid of Cece because something happened, but he 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 white fangs her. The only book that he's ever read, supposedly, is White Fang. And at the end of that book, it's like they're putting back out into the wild. Go on. So he's trying to break up with Cece by saying, get out of here. Go on. Go back to your kind. And that's how I'm starting to hear Naomi talking to Ruth. Like, get out of here. Go on. Go back to your kind. It kind of fits too because she's saying, go back to your people, don't come with me where I'm going. I'm glad that three or four of you watched New Girl, that would have been really brutal for all of us. Um, So it's set up, Ruth's big uh, interchange here is set up by um, Naomi saying, get out of here. I don't want you to be with me. And people have debated whether this is Naomi being self-sacrificial or if this is Naomi being bitter and callous. We don't know, but either way, she wants Ruth to go back home, and this is what Ruth responds. She says, don't urge me. And you can see the the gobbledygook up there, that's really Hebrew that's loaded up on my computer that didn't translate when we put the slideshow onto. Tessa's computer, make a note, Doug, we gotta download that font. Okay, but basically I can remember what's going on here. This Hebrew verb, it kind of connotes something of a pain Naomi, if you keep talking like this to me, you're, like, you're, you're, you're hurting me. Like the, the things that you are saying, I'm in, in pain by them, in pain. You can tuck that one away. It's a, it's a phrase. I'm sure somebody uses it somewhere. But like, stop speaking to me like this and don't urge me to abandon you, to go away from you, to leave you here alone. Don't continue to tell me to turn back from following after you. And then she launches into this speech. And again, we've got some fake Hebrew up there. Wherever you go, I will go. For somebody who's reading this text as an ancient Near Eastern Israelite reader, what they would have heard potentially with that that first verb there, I will go, it's reminiscent of the Abraham story in Genesis 12 where God says to Abram, go to the land that I will show you. And Abram, who becomes Abraham later in the story, goes. Now the difference between Abraham and Ruth is Abraham had a wife, family, people. Abraham was a man, versus the fact that here we have Ruth saying, I will go wherever you go in faith. There's, a, there's a, a, an implicit contrast between Abraham, the father of the Israelite people, and Ruth, the foreigner. Do not lose sight of this because within the Old Testament, this is completely mind-boggling. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Actually, in the Hebrew, it's your people, my people. It's kind of poetic, so there's like brevity is the name of the game, but your people, my people. Your God, my God. It's very terse, but it's also very powerful and beautiful. And what Ruth is saying is completely ridiculous when you think about the culture from which she is coming from. She is saying no to everything that she has known in her past, her people, her cultural identity, her, uh, her gods, her allegiance to um, her religion. She's saying, Naomi, I'm with you now. Wherever you die, I will die. That's massive. We don't think about this. But for a foreign person to be buried in foreign land in the ancient Near East, it's completely ridiculous. In, in, our, um, in, in our context, like death means one thing, but in the Old Testament context, when you die, you go to be with your ancestors, but not if you're buried in foreign territory. So for Ruth, this is a huge statement. She says, uh, wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. The Targums, are the Aramaic translation of the Old Testament. It's a collection of writings within uh, the Jewish religion that hold a lot of authority. And when the interpreters were going through the Old Testament, which is written in Hebrew mostly, interpreting it into uh, or translating it into Aramaic, because that's the language that the people spoke, they would add some things into it. And I found that this was interesting. This is the Targum to Ruth. They're setting up this, this uh, phrase or this poem that Ruth is reciting basically to Naomi and placing it in the context of conversion. It says, but Ruth said, and you can also see that the italics words here are from the text and the rest is stuff that they have input themselves. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you to turn back and not follow you for I desire to become a proselyte. Said Naomi, we are commanded to keep the Sabbaths and holidays, not to walk more than 2000 cubits said Ruth, wherever you go, I will go. Said Naomi, we are commanded not to spend the night together with non-Jews, said Ruth, wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Said Naomi, we are commanded to keep 613 commandments, said Ruth, that which your people keep that I shall keep as though they had been my people before this. Said Naomi, we are commanded not to worship idols, said Ruth, your God My God, the way that these ancient Jewish interpreters were looking at this story was this was a conversion text or a conversion moment where Ruth is forsaking her past and saying, I will follow Yahweh, the God of Israel. Naomi, I will be where you are and I will go where you are going. Your God will be my God. This text concludes Ruth's speech. She says, may the Lord do this to me and more so if even death separates me from you. This is not just an until uh, death separates us. This is even beyond death. There will be no separation for us. One commentator, I think this is kind of hokey, but this is where he went. He said, there might've been a nonverbal gesture uh, that went along with this. Like th- he said, uh, like this, may the Lord do this to me. Come on, man, you know, like, where are we getting that? I don't know where he's going with that, um, but this was a big deal where Ruth is uh, invoking the name of Naomi's God, and her promise to Naomi is, is important. Now, for one scholar, they say that Ruth's choice here makes no sense. For her to follow Naomi, it makes absolutely no sense in this context, and I've got a couple of reasons why this makes no sense for her in this moment in time. And I'm hopeful that we can get through these with relative quickness. The first reason why this makes no sense for Ruth to stand up and say, I'm going to go where you're going to go, Naomi. I'm going to, your people will be my people and your gods will be my gods. And wherever I die is where you're going to die, that sort of stuff. She's leaving the security of her home One scholar says that Naomi acknowledges in the world in which they all live, security and well-being were directly dependent upon a link with some male, whether that be a father, a husband, even a son. And widowhood often meant inevitable alienation and destitution. Another scholar says widows were generally at a great social disadvantage and needed economic and legal protection. So, Naomi here saying, Go back to the house of your mom. Maybe you'll find a husband there. And Ruth saying, No. It defies all logic in this particular moment in time. Because widows were, yeah, generally at a great disadvantage from a social standpoint, but also an economic and potentially even a legal standpoint. This is built into the, to the fabric of the Old Testament. We've got a number of texts where it kind of uh, implores its audience to care for the widow and the orphan and these people on the outskirts and the margins. In Exodus 22, it says, don't mistreat or oppress an immigrant because you were once immigrants in the land of Egypt. Don't treat any widow or orphan badly. If you do treat them badly and they cry out to me, you can be sure that I'll hear their cry. I really wanted to stop the quote here at verse 23, but I thought that would be disingenuous. So buckle up. We won't talk about it, but understand that there is some tough stuff in the Old Testament, especially in the law code. Verse 24, I'll be furious and I'll kill you with the sword. Isaac doesn't like it and I don't like it either. I'll be furious and I'll kill you with the sword. Then your wives will be widows and your children will be orphans. Don't mess with this one. Care for these people that have no one else to care for them. In Jeremiah 7, this is the Lord who has, who has left, in a sense, the, the, the temple and his presence is there no longer. And he's saying, if you stop taking advantage of the immigrant, the orphan, or the widow. If you don't shed the blood of the innocent in this place or go after other gods to your own ruin, only then will I dwell with you in this place in the land that I gave long ago to your ancestors for all time. Or Zechariah 7, don't oppress the widow, the orphan, the stranger, and the poor. Don't plan evil against each other. Or Isaiah 1, which says, remove your ugly deeds from my sight. Put an end to such evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. And this is what it looks like help the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Friends, we could stop right here and look in the mirror and say, how are we doing when it comes to this? Seeking justice by helping the oppressed and defending the orphan and pleading for the widow. How are we engaging that within our particular moment in time? But this is a huge thing for uh, ancient Israel to care for these people. And Ruth leaving, she's leaving her security. She's leaving that uh, potential for her and trusting her future with a people that she doesn't know. She's also leaving the possibility of her future. And here I'm specifically tying her future to a potential husband. This is not in a 21st century American context where you can be a strong, independent woman like Beyonce. Beyonce who happens to be married, so this doesn't really, it's not a great example, but you could be a strong, independent, single woman. Not so much in the ancient Near East. It's not quite a death sentence, but it's not necessarily a great thing for this to happen. So Ruth saying, I'm gonna go hang out with you, Naomi, is a weird thing. Uh, Again, Phyllis Tribble says, a young woman has committed herself to the life of an old woman rather than to search for a husband, and she has made this commitment not until death do us part, but beyond death. This is a beautiful sentence here. There is no more radical decision in all of the memories of Israel. Is Ruth the foreigner's commitment to Naomi against all odds? I am leaving my security. I am leaving my potential future because Naomi hasn't laid that out for her at this point. She's also leaving the acceptance of her in-group. We do not think about this. But Ruth was from Moab. And remember last week, Moab is not a great place. It's origins. The origin story of Moab go back to Lot becoming drunk because his daughters give him some wine and he's drunk to the point of not being able to know what he's doing, but he impregnates both of his daughters in consecutive nights. And one of them has a baby named Moab. One of them has a baby named Ammon, uh, who becomes the father of the Ammonites, and the other one becomes the father of the Moabites. And this, within the Israelite mind, this is not a great people. She's leaving the acceptance of her in-group. And throughout the story, the author wants you to hear this over and over. Beginning in Ruth chapter one, they took wives. This is Malon and Kilian. They took wives for themselves and they were Moabite women. Later on in that chapter, Naomi returns and Ruth the Moabite returned with her. In chapter two, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi. Later in chapter two, um, when this is Boaz talking to his field guy, he says, She's a young Moabite woman or Ruth the Moabite later in chapter two when she's speaking and Ruth the Moabite, like the author is saying, she's a Moabite, she's a Moabite, she's a Moabite. Remember that because when you're reading this story, this is important. She's a Moabite, Ruth the Moabite. It's rarely just Ruth. It's Ruth the Moabite, the foreigner, the person that doesn't live here. You have to understand this as you're reading this story. She has left her people and now she finds herself in Bethlehem with a foreign group of people. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, we also learned that the Ammonites, um, remember one side of Lot's people, and the Moabites, the other side, can't belong to the Lord's assembly. Not even the 10th generation of such people can belong to the Lord's assembly. These people were pushed out. And it's as if when, when Ruth commits herself to Naomi, what she will hear or what she's assigning herself to hear potentially for the rest of her life is, you're not one of us. You're not like us in any way. Yet here you are. It could have been a potentially destructive uh, place for her to be where she's just at the mercy of, of these ancient Israelite people who are not known for accepting and loving and including We also find that Ruth is leaving the traditions of her God. Each um, place has like a patron God. And in Moab, the, the God that they served was named Chemosh. We don't know about Ruth's commitment to Chemosh, but we know that in this speech, she says, may Yahweh do this to me if I leave you. She's beginning to align herself with a God who, get this, she only knows from Naomi remember the one who is in the midst of the darkest point of her life where Naomi's God has not really done anything for her, brought her to this place to watch her entire family die just so that she can go back, and Ruth's saying, meh, I think I'll follow that God. It seems like a good, good deal. She's leaving the traditions of her God and her people, and she's turning to Naomi, to Naomi's people that she does not know and to Naomi's God that she might not have any reason to trust at this particular moment in time. And the way that I want to kind of tie this up, or at least just the things that I want us to think about this evening, is as we see Ruth in this impassioned uh, speech that she gives to her mother-in-law, I'm not going to leave you. I told you that Jewish interpreters have wondered if this is like a conversion moment. We don't know, but what we do know is Ruth is demonstrating a level of commitment to Naomi that is unparalleled, especially in the ancient world when she is leaving so much behind. But the thing that you have to understand as you're reading this story is it's commitment and conversion of a foreigner. It's commitment and conversion of of a member of an out group who's leaving every form of security behind, financial, legal, with regard to religion and commitment. She's leaving all that behind. It's also the conversion and commitment, if we're gonna advance the story a bit, of a Gentile. Now, the way that I would like for us to think about this is I believe that the Old Testament, it points us to Jesus. We, we see this even within Luke chapter 24 when Jesus is talking to some people after he has been raised from the dead. And he says, don't you guys know, don't you get it, that everything in the law and the prophets and the Psalms, it points to me and it's fulfilled in me. And we have this rogue story about a couple of women in the Old Testament, right? One of which is from Moab, one of which has has no business being included in this beautiful story of Israel and Yahweh and Yahweh's people, yet she commits herself to Naomi against all odds and leaves everything behind to become part of this people, potentially a people that doesn't even want her to be with them. And it reminds me, in some ways, of the gospel where we have usually seen ourselves as the stars of the story. Yes, Jesus came down here and died on the cross for me because I am so holy and so worthy and blah, blah, blah. Maybe we don't frame it that way, but we forget so often that we were not written into this story throughout the Old Testament necessarily. There's hints, and Paul would say, from before the foundations of the earth, that we have all those sorts of things, but this is the surprise moment when Jesus allows us to become part of his people. We are the out group. We are the foreigners. We are the Gentiles that Jesus says, I still want you. And everything that I've done, the things that you've seen me do, the teachings, the healings, the, the food miracles, why I've fed people, I'm doing it for you so that we can build a kingdom together. And what we see here in Ruth is this person who doesn't belong in the story that's being brought into the story and the climax of that shows up and I'm kind of jumping ahead of myself. I didn't want to go here tonight, but I'm going here anyway. In Matthew chapter one, when we look at the genealogy of Jesus, the very um, stylistically motivated genealogy of Jesus that includes these rogue characters, one of which is Ruth and Jesus brings her in to the family. My hope tonight is that from this Old Testament story that we begin to see how we too have been brought into this story or how we can be a part of this story. I don't know what it is that you guys are going through. I don't know if you guys are in the dark of the, of the dark here where you have uh, experienced loss and you've experienced um, difficulties, where you're in grief and where you don't trust anymore and you've got these, these things that are keeping you at uh, a certain length from God. But what we see in this story is hints, it's glimmers of hope that Jesus is bringing us in, the foreigner, the one on the margins and the outskirts that needs a community to embrace us. I'm hopeful tonight that for those of us that have already made that commitment, that we are reminded where we have come from. And I'm hopeful that tonight, if you haven't made that sort of commitment, that you hear maybe for the first time, hope that this is for you. And this isn't just a get out of jail free card. This is like you get to become part of the family that is doing work here and now, becoming an agent of restoration and hope and redemption for the people around you. I'm hopeful that tonight in the tenacity of this foreign woman that we can be inspired to become tenacious ourselves and say, I will go, Jesus, wherever it is that you are leading me. And I will die serving you and you only. Thanks again for joining us. If you live in the Salisbury area, we invite you to visit us for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story is, there's room for you here. And again, if you'd like more information, please visit our website at restoresby.org. Hope to see you soon.